1: Hello, I'm Tom Slater from Spiked, and before we get into this episode of Last Orders, I want to say a huge thank you to all of our readers and listeners, and especially those of you who support our free and fearless journalism by donating to us monthly or whenever you can. Without you, we simply wouldn't be here, so thanks to them, and if you don't already give please do consider making a one-off donation or even better, becoming a monthly donor. All you have to do is go to spikes-online.com, click on the donate button at the top of the homepage and give whatever you can. It is all greatly appreciated. Now, back to last orders. In this episode, myself and Chris are joined by Spikes editor, Brendan O'Neill, to discuss minimum pricing on booze, Public Health England's calls for calorie caps and if watching Love Island is bad for your health. Enjoy. Enjoy. Welcome to Last Orders, the Spike podcast on all things Nanny State. I'm Tom Slater, Deputy Editor at Spite. As ever, I'm joined today by Chris Snowden of the Institute of Economic Affairs and the author of Killjoys, A Critique of Paternalism. Hello, Chris. Hello. And our special guest today is Spite's editor, Brendan O'Neill, also a prolific commentator, author, and perhaps most pertinently for this discussion, he also has a food column in Spectator Life. Um, so, hello, Brendan. Hi, Tom so let 's kick things off we 're going to be talking about minimum pricing on alcohol, so in May, Scotland is due to set the minimum price um, per unit at fifty pence after it beat a legal challenge at the Supreme Court at the tail end of last year. Um, Wales I hear is soon expected to follow suits, and it 's beginning to feel like the battle on this issue is more or less settled at least legislatively so dark times perhaps, but Chris, for those who haven 't been following this for all the years that it has taken to get to this point, what is minimum pricing? What does it do
0: and why is it a terrible idea? Minimum pricing is a floor price on alcohol, so it doesn't necessarily add to the price of alcohol, but you can't sell a unit uh, of alcohol below it. The usually cited figure is 50p. That seems to be what they're doing in Scotland for the time being. Um, It's been held up in various court cases because, really, it it should have been declared as... um, Going against EU free trade rules, but they made an exemption because it's public health. So you can just drive a coach and horses for anything if you claim it's for the benefit of public health. And um, so the SNP have always been very keen on it. You know, these devolved governments, they can't do that much. But so if they can do anything eye catching and nanny stateish, and they, they tend to make themselves feel like world leaders by doing it. Um, so once, you know, some dominoes go, it's likely others will go. Uh, Northern Ireland, I think, is looking very seriously as well. Ireland is pretty much definitely going to do it, and at an even higher rate than, than Scotland's going to do it. England, a uh, different story. Theresa May, bless her, has never been that keen on the idea. Supposedly, she was one of the main people who talked Cameron out of doing it in the first place. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, the policy literally is wait and see. I'm actually fairly optimistic, because I do think, and the, more, the closer it gets, the more convinced I am that this is going to be a very unpopular um policy and if someone like ruth davidson comes along and takes this up as her issue i think they they can get some serious pushback on this people have been lied to effectively about minimum pricing from day one there's this um idea pushed by the temperance lobby and the public health lobby that it's only going to affect really heavy drinkers of really strong cheap alcohol so in people's minds they're thinking white cider maybe very cheap vodka that kind of thing as the Institute for Fiscal Studies have shown, it's actually going to affect 70 percent of all the alcohol uh, sold in the off-trade, which is where most of the alcohol is sold. It is going to double, for example, a, a slab of strongbow. Um, it's going to increase even wine, which is affected less than most of the drinks with this, is going to 40 percent of the wine sold in off- trade is going to be affected by it, about 70 percent of the spirits. Uh, about 70-80% of beer. This is something people are going to notice in Scotland straight away. And they won't, even though it's been a news issue, a new story for a long time, there's been a big public debate about even though people know it's coming in, when they see those prices change on May the 1st, there's going to be people kicking off about it. There's massive opportunities for cross-border trade to England. It doesn't seem to be thought through. If you're on a computer in Scotland, you can buy online from England perfectly legally at the English price. You can ship it over the, 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 border. Wales, I mean, there's literally an Asda either side of the river, you know, and, and they're dropping the toll on the Seven Bridge around about the same time they're bringing minimum pricing in. So it's perfect joined up government. I think there's going to be all sorts of problems here. It's going to be notably regressive. It isn't going to solve the problem it sets out to solve. It's going to lead to people switching to illicit or online alcohol, possibly even, um, to illicit drugs. I think actually it will be unpopular. And as much as the public health people will be rushing to get a load of junk studies out saying this has an immediate positive impact, I think people will see with their own eyes that this is an ineffective and uh, and, a, and a punishing policy that just increases the cost of living for no benefit at all.
2: Brendan, what's your take on uh, this? I completely agree. It's com- completely and utterly regressive. I hope people do see that. I, I really hope there is a cross-border trade between England and Scotland in that kind of quite... Um, creative, fruitful way that people sometimes develop to get around these kind of ridiculous laws and ridiculous rules. Um, I think, you know, it does smack of syntax. It is the use of financial pressure on people to try and change their habits, to try and make them better, healthier uh, people in the eyes of those who who presume they have the right to make these kind of judgments. So it's regressive, it's backward, it's illiberal, it's deeply problematic. And I hope it does prove unpopular. Um, I think one of the things that really brings home, as Chris is touching on, is the the, the nanny state lobby, the public health lobby, never thinks about the unintended consequences of what it does. Because they are so self-righteous, because they are so self-certain, because they think everything they do is kind of ordained from some kind of god of public health, they never stop to analyze what they're doing or to think about the potential spin-offs from what they're doing. So as you say, there could be this cross-border trade more worrying more worryingly than that there could be people looking for cheaper forms of alcohol or other forms of substances that might get their rocks off uh you know it always makes me think back to uh, during the blair years in particular when there was this really concerted effort to get young people out of pubs and to stop serving booze to anyone who looked vaguely under 18 which of course had this ridiculous knock-on effect that teenagers were getting drunk in parks or at home or um under bridges which means we have this new generation which doesn't know how to get drunk happy days right happy days tom remembers because they weren't socialized into drinking in public with adults which is actually a really important experience in a young person's life when you learn how to get drunk you do it in a measured way you appreciate the social aspects of it um so that was one of the consequences of this kind of psychotic attempt to make sure that no one underage was ever served a pint of beer in a pub you you create a new generation which is just quite immature when it comes to booze no offense tom to your generation um so that i think and this really smacks of that this complete unwillingness or inability to think through the potential consequences of raising prices or restricting access or making people do things they would rather not do, and that's I think a, that that's a, a, a constant in the nanny state. Never wondering about the possibility that their rules, which are designed in their eyes to improve people's health and improve people's lives, can often actually have the opposite
1: effect. But on the point of whether or not this is actually going to. Prove unpopular to the point where that could actually be a response to this. Because I just think of the price hikes that we've had on cigarettes for so long. It's, maybe it's because it's happened more gradually, but nevertheless, people moan about it, but it's not necessarily that they connect that with something that the state is imposing on them. It doesn't generate any kind of like political response. And also, who would possibly champion this? Because the, one of the most depressing things about all these nanny state things is that pretty much all the main political parties kind of agree on them. So whilst I take your optimism, Chris, do you think there's, it's likely that this will be the thing, unlike so many others, that proves that much more explosive?
0: Well, for Scotland to repeal it, yes, that would be a big step because it's kind of a flagship policy for the SNP. There is a sunset clause in there for five years, but these sunset clauses rarely actually um, you know, are even called up when it comes to it. And as I say, there'll be all sorts of, uh, you know, Junk science in the, in some of the journals saying it's been a great success, regardless of what goes on. We've seen this with plain packaging, which was obviously a flop. It's been by any metric, it's been a flop in Australia. But they're not going to repeal it. They've claimed as a success, even though smoking rates flatlining and the illicit trade's gone through the roof. So it's very hard to repeal things once it's once they've been brought in. I, I will give you that. However, for England, which does contain the vast majority of the, the UK population. I think if they see that it's been unpopular, apart from anything else, I mean, this, it's a political decision at the end of the day. If they see it's been unpopular, they won't do it. Um, and then it's up to Scotland whether they you know, d- d- reverse it or whatever. But it's interesting, in recent days, that the public health lobby have already started getting their excuses in. Um, the front page of one of the Scottish papers... This week said that 50p is too little to make any difference. The exact opposite of what we've been told for the last 10 years when these endless computer models come out saying it's going to save however many lives, reduce the crime rate by, by you know, thousands. Um, so they're getting their excuses in. They're saying it should, it shouldn't be 50p. It should be 60p. It should be 70p. And this is really, um, the, the big problem is every failure creates another opportunity for more laws, more policies, more taxes. Um, you don't often get repeal, as I say, but you do instead get new problems that have been created. So this cross-border issue, which I'm convinced will will uh, take place to some extent, um, it will get the blame for it in England. Be, well, England needs to join the rest of the UK, get with the programme, because at the moment there's loads of Welsh people buying uh, booze from England, and it's England's fault that this isn't working. It would work. If um, if England just joined us, exactly the same thing actually happened with prohibition in America. They had statewide prohibition, and the states next door to the, the 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 dry states were selling a huge amount of alcohol. And so in the end, they said we need national prohibition. And once they got national prohibition, it said, "Well, we've got alcohol coming in from overseas. We need to have worldwide prohibition." Um, so there's always another problem created by these people that can only apparently be solved by yet more regulation. And of course, you just get in this whirlwind of destruction where things just keep getting worse and worse.
2: On that, I think, I mean, I, I I like your optimism, but I'm I'm not sure if I share it because the thing is, the thing that most worries me about nanny state stuff is that people are often pissed off with it and it irritates them and they moan about it amongst themselves. But there has been very little politicized or collective action against it. And I think probably the likeliest thing with Scotland and Wales is that what we will see is an attempt to circumvent it. Which is its own form of rebellion against the new regulations and against government diktat. Uh, people will try, find a way to get around it in, in some fashion, which is great and should be encouraged, I think. Um, but, you know, the, take the example of Ireland. I mean, I get so, I know a lot about Ireland. I go there a lot. And the, the success of the nanny state in Ireland causes me a great amount of depression. Uh, you know, the smoking ban was very early there and was very successful and didn't cause much fuss. Um, the minimum pricing, as you say, is, could be, could take off there pretty well. Um, and there hasn't been the backlash you might expect, even though, in terms of the unintended consequences, have been huge because in rural parts of Ireland, uh, people either don't go out to drink. Because, um, you know, they don't because they can't smoke in the pub anymore or they, you know, the drink driving clampdown is now so intense that even if you drive after one drink, you can be pulled over. So there's more atomization. The pubs are not doing particularly well. Um, people are cut off from the neighbors in a way that they hadn't been before. So all these kind of consequences springing out of the nanny state um, imposition. But there hasn't been that kind of anger that you would like to see. Uh, whether this will be the tipping point, I mean, I hope it will be. But uh, a part of me is concerned that, you know, one of the most successful ways in which government enforces its authority on people now is via the issue of health. Um, and it's, it's for some reason, it kind of... Um, Doesn't get as much pushback as it ought to, and I think that's one of the reasons why they are so keen on the public health stuff because they recognise it's an easy way into governing people's lives in relation. And I
0: do take that, and I'm not naturally an optimist. I'm I'm making the argument that there is there is reason for optimism here. I think because there aren't that many smokers. There's a lot of drinkers. That's one big difference, Um, and. You look at something like Pastygate, right? I mean, that was a, a trivial issue, really. And yet the country was up in arms about it. All it needs is the, the media and a few politicians to get behind. Um, and course, In Scotland, both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have got every reason to use this as a stick with which to beat Nicola yeah. Sturgeon. As being she's a woman who's making poor people pay more for their beer for no reason. We'll put an end to it. So, you can, I think, easily imagine somebody, you know, the, the campaign for repeal getting ahead of steam, at least in theory.
1: And on that unusually positive note, I think we should move on to the second topic. So, calorie counting. Public Health England, which I think it's fair to say is probably the main kind of bete noir of this podcast, um, has been coming out with some pretty strange stuff on calories recently. So, in January, which is always a kind of big nanny state month oh, yes. people trudging back to work feeling a little bit guilty um and they put out these um, statements suggesting that there should be this pretty arbitrary sounding 100 calorie cap on kids snacks That then came back and said that your daily meal shouldn't add up to more than 1600 calories which is way below the um, supposed calorie measure for both men and women and Chris, what's the background on this, really? Why are they putting out this information, which on the face of it seems to be pretty arbitrary or actually against a lot of the stuff that they've been telling us for donkey's years?
0: Well, something is afoot, and I think we'll find out in March exactly what it is. There were a couple of, as you say, a couple of strange announcements um, over the Christmas period. First off, telling parents not to buy their kids snacks, which have more than 100 calories in it. And then saying that, as you say, effectively only 1,600 calories a day, 400 for breakfast, 600 for lunch, 600 for for dinner. And when it was pointed out to them that this only adds up to 1,600 and an adult male is supposed to have 2,500 to maintain a healthy weight, they said, oh, yeah, well, you can make up the difference with alcohol and sugary drinks and snacks. Well, this is not what I was expecting from Public Health England. Yeah. A recommendation to consume 900 calories in booze, sugary drinks, and, and Mars bars. But, you know, if that's the advice. You know, who, who are we to, uh, to reject it? Um, so it clearly wasn't very well thought out, but it was all about calories. And the, the reason for that is they've already been doing this stupid sugary formulation. We've talked about that, I think, on the podcast before. But phase two of that is fat reduction, salt reduction, and overall calorie reduction. And this is where it really gets serious. Um, in March, apparently, Public Health England are going to start issuing their new targets for industry. They're also going to name and shame people from the previous sugar reduction scheme. So it's all very much uh, about um, putting companies on, on the spot, this. We have seen over the past year or so, numerous chocolate bars getting smaller, packets of digestives getting smaller, all this, everything's getting smaller because the only way, in in effect, to reduce the amount of sugar in inherently sugary products is to reduce portion size. And they've tried to blame it on Brexit. They've tried to blame it on the cost of raw materials. Actual facts, you look, I know the, the pound did fall a bit after Brexit, but if you look at the price of cocoa and sugar, it's actually fallen by a third since the referendum. So really, these things should be... Getting cheaper, and even if even if the raw materials had gone up, you don't make things smaller. That's not a normal thing to do when you have inflation. You just put your price up, obviously. So uh, it's nothing to do with that. It's all to do with the sugar reformulation scheme. We now presumably are going to see um, food companies who make other products which don't contain sugar get smaller. There'll be pressure on for pizzas and pasties, and you, know, you name it. They'll have to get smaller because most of these things again can't actually be reformulated in some magic way uh, with fewer calories.
1: And Brendan, you wrote about the calorie caps this month in your Spectator food column. Um, So what are your thoughts on this?
2: Uh, It's just ridiculous. I think it's really dystopian actually, this kind of forcing the nation to go on a diet is effectively what's happened you know it's like the public health England has taken one look at us decided we're all gross and then thought well we'll introduce some measures to make everyone go on diet because you know one of their original suggestions was that they would actually enforce calorie caps which they slightly backtracked on but their chief nutritionist said that you know we will make fast food outlets and and ready meal companies have actual calorie caps. So they backtrack because there was exactly the kind of backlash that you were talking about earlier from some people in the media. And now what's going to happen is that they will put pressure on food companies and the food industry to make this happen. So it, so it will happen. And I think it's, it's crazy. I mean, imagine having 600 calories for dinner. I mean, what's that? That's, that's the starter for, for a lot of people. Um, it, it's this kind of, incredibly miserablest, um, almost anorexic attitude that they have to life, where they think everyone needs to be as hung up about food uh, as they are. Um, and, and it could cause, you know, if people were to follow these rules, they would not be particularly healthy, and they would uh, be undernourished in many ways. I think it's this kind of forced, uh, state-enforced dieting, um, in a way that i think takes the whole food scare and the whole nanny state outlook to a, actually to a new level um you know it's following on suit from the sugar stuff and and their obsession with uh, reducing the amount of sugar and and other products in certain foodstuffs but it really is taking it to the next level of kind of this diktat from on high about what you should eat and how much you should eat and and um you know if like if mcdonald's was to go along with this then breakfast wouldn't include sausage and egg McMuffin with a hash brown, because that's more, if you put those two things together, that's more than 400 calories. So when they start putting pressure on companies and restaurants and others to, uh, enforce this calorie diktat, then we are going to see a change in, in what people are expected to eat. I think it's, it's, it is a dystopian measure, and it should—it's one that should worry a lot of people.
1: And on that point of the kind of unintended consequences of this, and making everyone so self-conscious about the kind of calorie intake, because it seems like there's been a bit of pushback from health experts, um, even from some people with eating disorders, etc. Chris, do you want to tell us a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, there's uh, there's a fantastic video out on YouTube you can find uh, involving loads and loads of uh, people, mainly young women who've all had experience of eating disorders, who are absolutely furious with public health for coming up with this stuff about 100 calories a snack and limiting your breakfast to 400. And they just say, um, you know, we have spent years trying to get over this, this sort of obsessive calorie counting and being scared of food, and you're trying to make us scared of it again. Um, it was a very powerful point, and I think quite rightly. I mean, what is someone, you know, somebody with an eating disorder, someone who's anorexic, How are they supposed to react when Public Health England effectively tell them that the most they should consume in a day is 1,600 calories, which is basically a malnutrition diet. You will lose a lot of weight if you consume 1,600 calories over, over a prolonged period of time. It's utterly irresponsible. So why are they doing it? They don't really want us to consume 900 calories in alcohol and sugary drinks, do they? They're doing it because they think that we lie about what we eat. Or we lie to ourselves about what we eat. And it's certainly true that people hugely underreport the number of calories they consume for various different reasons. It's not actually lying, a lot of it's just forgetfulness and things. But yes, it, we, we underestimate what we eat by about a third. So they think that the the plebs don't know how much they're eating, or they're lying about how many calories they're consuming. So we'll lie to them about how many calories they should be consuming. That'll cancel it out in some way. So we'll tell them to eat 400 calories for breakfast. They'll end up eating 600 calories and that'd be about right. And every, everyone's a winner. But of course, not everybody does lie. Not every, and some people, you know, not me or many sensible people, but most, uh, some people do actually try and follow this health advice. And you've got health advice here, which if you follow it, you will become unhealthy to the point of malnutrition.
1: But what, what does this tell us about public health England though because that's one of the things that we, you know we talk about this organisation a lot and Chris you made the point before that um it's not even really that concerned with public health so much of it is private decisions really most of the time but also if it could justify itself that it's actually just there to put out impartial factually based information this whole um campaign seems to completely deny that so really what is the point of it and why is it something that seems to receive so little criticism
0: well, it should be, it should be closed down, I think, completely. It does some good work, which can be maintained. But I mean, it certainly shouldn't be getting the four and a half billion pounds a year it gets. An unbelievable budget. We keep hearing about these public health cuts, but last year they got four and a half billion. A lot of it, most of it goes to local authorities, but it's still, the local authorities are there to do what public health tell them to more or less, under their, you know, public health directors who get paid at least £150,000 a year for turning up to council meetings hassling counsellors into doing more to get people to go to exercise classes and all this utterly wasteful rubbish. All that money should be spent on the NHS and and healthcare. Um, We don't need Public Health England telling us to wrap up warm on a cold day or to open a window in summer and have a glass of water, all this trivial nonsense. They are, you know, I'm not trying to be insulting, but I I do believe it's true that a lot of these people, they are just stupid. And a lot of them are liars. And the, the lying comes from but by necessity really you know <laughs> they they feel that it's the most effective way to get the message across anybody who strongly believes in something to a fanatical extent generally will resort to lying because they think that the ends justify the means you see this with this calorie stuff but you also see it with all kinds of other stuff about smoking outdoors and you know the amount i mean alcohol guidelines prime example right it's the alcohol guidelines it's been shown categorically that Public Health England, on behalf of the the chief medical officer's group, got the guys who did the computer modeling um, for the guidelines to change their methodology in a way nobody can possibly justify, purely to make sure that the male drinking guidelines were lowered. The whole thing was rigged. It's, uh, But they, th- th- I think they are so used to doing that, and I think there's so much of that in the Academy of Public Health. There's so much blatantly dishonest junk science knocking around. I don't think they would have even thought twice about doing it.
2: There's a real and also there's a really schizophrenic attitude to food and diet and body image among the whole public health establishment, because they will often say uh, lots of these people, particularly politicians, will often say, oh, it's terrible that young girls feel they have to be super thin. It's because of the media. It's because of these images of these supermodels and, you know, their minds are being warped and put under pressure. But that is just an unsustainable argument because when you live under a government which is constantly weighing children or sending letters home from school saying they're obese or Public Health England putting out this new advice advice saying eat uh, far fewer calories than you were eating before... You are going to create a situation where young people, in particular, will be completely hung up about diet and completely hung up about body image. So, uh, you know, the, in terms of the unintended consequences, I think one unintended consequence is, you know, among teenagers in particular who are, have a lot of hang-ups anyway. This whole this pressure on them to eat certain things, to to weigh a certain amount, to not have. A, too high a BMI or else there'll be a shameful letter or, you know, it's basically, um, state endorsed bullying of fat children or kids with puppy fat or kids who aren't even fat at all. As it Mostly
0: happens. not even fat themselves. Not yeah.
2: a fat at all. So it's, um, it, that kind of, um, state campaign seems to me to be entirely destructive of the teenage years in particular when people should just be relaxed and, and doing pretty much what they want. So th- that kind of, um, schizophrenic, uh, consequence-inducing approach that these public health officials have is something that they never think through, precisely because they are so psychotically convinced that they are right and they have right on their side that they, they don't deign to think about that stuff. And if they were to discover that something they were doing was destructive or not completely true, they would just brush over it because the mission takes precedence over everything else.
1: So let's move on to our last topic, um, which is the supposedly nefarious influence of smoking and drinking in reality TV. So before this podcast, Chris sent us over to Amazing Studies, I think by the same person, um, who seems to have just watched hours back to back of Love Island and Geordie Shore, um, noting all the times that there is alcohol use, cigarette use, or implied alcohol and cigarette use, which is particularly strange considering that both those shows are about far more sinful things most of the time. So Chris, there's a slightly (laughs) strange kind of puritanism going on in relation to this stuff. So you can tell us a little bit more about this research and why it seems to be so shocked and appalled about smoking and drinking in TV shows which are mainly about shagging and fighting. Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's kind of the 21st century Mary Whitehouse, isn't it? Not concerned at all about the swearing and the fighting and the shagging. Very concerned that there might be implied drinking, which (laughs) is uh, one of the major themes of uh, the Geordie Shaw study. They don't just look at the depiction of drinking, although it's obviously bad enough, but also the implied drinking of seeing corkscrews around and stuff like that. And there's also implied smoking, I think, in the smoking study of seeing ashtrays or lighters. Um, all of which, of course, is very problematic for these people. Um, because we all know Geordie Shaw and Love Island are predominantly aimed at, you know, at primary school children who are extremely, uh, extremely e- easy to influence. Um, now I must confess I have never seen Love Island or Geordie Shaw. I got the gist of, um, uh, of what they're about when I looked at some clips on YouTube. And, uh, I, I think they're both on at least 10 o'clock at night. Now you're hooked. Uh, on not mainstream channels either. I mean, MTV, ITV2, something like that. MTV, ITV2. Um, but that doesn't stop these people being paid by the Department of Health and Cancer Research and these organizations to, as you say, sit around watching DVDs. And why are we supposed to care about people drinking in Geordie Shore? Why is this not laughed right out of court from, from day one? The argument in the study is that some of the episodes which showed drinking were not 18s. Not 18 certificates on the, on the DVD. The actual box set was 18, so it's kind of irrelevant. But some of the specific episodes were only 15s. So therefore, 15 and 16-year-olds could have seen people drinking. So what? Mm-hmm. I mean, so what? There, there isn't any evidence that even explicit alcohol advertising makes people drink more. Well, not, not any credible evidence. Um, so why, why would we be concerned about, about this? There are... Just quickly, there is a campaign, has been for years in America, called Smoke Free Movies, which tries to get the equivalent of the BBFC um, in America to rate all films that show smoking in any context, including, like, you know, historical dramas or whatever, even if it's it's, it's a baddie. It's generally, in in Hollywood films, if the person smoking is going to be the baddie or a paedophile or something like that. So it's hardly a role model. Um, But they want 18 certificates for it regardless. They have been pushing at this for a long, long time, and normally these guys win. They haven't in this instance, and I don't think they'll win in in Britain because it's basically the same crusade. They want to have this stuff on either extremely late at night or rated 18. Um, I don't think it'll happen. The BBFC has been pretty steadfast in the past in saying, look, this is about freedom of expression. I think really what it is is they do not want to in any way... Accept the premise that monkey see, monkey do in films. You know, because this was the big thing in the '90s, wasn't it? About violent films and yeah. people go out copying and all that kind of stuff. Once they concede a point, which I believe to be untrue, but once they concede the argument that you know seventeen-year-olds watching something on on TV are powerless to stop themselves going out and doing the same thing, then that really does change what's allowed to be put in films. It's not just about drinking and smoking.
2: And Brendan, what should take on all this? Yeah, that's why I think it's so important to ridicule and oppose things like this, where there's this attempt to erase any imagery of smoking or drinking or people having fun. It and is, on
1: reality TV. And on reality yeah.
2: TV, where it's, which is supposed it's to be real. Um, and, or, you know, going back to old movies and, and old cartoons where sometimes they airbrush cigars out of mickey mouse's mouth and so on um it's really important to oppose that be precisely because that if you accept that then you completely buy into media effects theory and the idea that everything that's shown on screen could influence someone to do something bad and that's the end that's the end therefore of hollywood violence or sex or anything else that you wouldn't want people necessarily to be doing so uh, it's really uh Scary stuff, but it's also I'm glad this kind of thing's happening because it really does demonstrate the puritanical, moralistic streak in these movements when they are seeking not simply to discourage smoking and discourage drinking and discourage discourage eating chocolate, but to cleanse the public realm of any images of those pastimes. Uh, You know, this is we shouldn't beat around the bush. These are this is almost a religious fervour that they have, where it's not simply, um, don't sin, but we have to eradicate every evidence that, every sign that someone is out there committing these sins. I mean, these are crazy people. Um, and you know, it really reached uh, its most ridiculous level a few years ago when there was that image of Winston Churchill smoking a cigar outside the, some London war museum. And, um, people complained by people. I mean, like, two public not health this. psychos. <laughs> Uh, and the cigar was airbrushed away, and and that's the logical conclusion of this stuff. If you buy into the increasingly unhinged anti-smoking, anti-drinking uh, drive, you will create a world in which those things are never seen, and the people who do this stuff will never be seen. You know, they'll be shoved into boxes if they want to smoke a cigarette anywhere in public, and it will create a, a, a cruel, censorious, unpleasant atmosphere, which I think is why it's really important to take this stuff to task.
0: And there has literally been a rewriting of, of history with some of this airbrushing, which of course is what you know, airbrushing is all about and why it's so Stalinist. They did it with um, Robert Johnson, you know, blues singer. There's only one photo, basically, of Robert Johnson. He's got a cigar, a cigarette drooping out of his mouth. There's only really one famous picture of him, King of Brunel, I think, and they always... Oh, often airbrush it out. Churchill, as you say, in America. Paul McCartney on the cover of Abbey Road, he's holding a cigarette. They've airbrushed it out um, on some posters in America. This is, I think this is pretty scary stuff. I don't see this as being of a different order to smashing up statues, really.
1: But on that point, because I remember when the Love Island study came out, and it was, you know, it made a lot of newspapers, and it was something that was quite uncritically presented as you know re- uh in the no researchers say so and so about love island its effects on people why even when it's this crazy this kind of you know sub sjw almost but just in public health terms is it still taken quite seriously and given a thorough hearing in the press etc
2: yeah the media is far too uncritical of this stuff i mean it's it's one area in which you know the media will often be critical of certain aspects of the politics of fear particularly in relation to like terrorism or you know sometimes The right-wing media will be critical of the politics of fear in relation to environmentalism. But when it comes to the politics of fear that is the beating heart of the nanny state outlook, there's far less scepticism in much of the media. That is a problem. At the same time, I think... The nanny state is one of those great issues that really points to the existence of two Britons. So on one side, you have the public health lobby and the media and others who go along with this stuff. And you think it's absolutely terrible that Love Island shows people smoking and drinking and so on. And the other side, you have ordinary people who watch Love Island in their millions. I mean, that was an incredibly popular show, particularly amongst young people and didn't bat an eyelid at what they were doing it's in terms of smoking, drinking, having sex or whatever else. They just liked the people, followed them on Twitter and had fun.
0: And don't start smoking as well. And don't I start mean, smoking, hasn't right. exactly. been a rise in smoking as well. Yeah. No, it's been dropping like a stone exactly. amongst young people. So
2: they actually treat those shows as you should, which is you're entertained by them, but you don't let them govern your outlook on life. So um, the the, this, the the divide that exists between this panicked, freaked out, public health lobby that thinks everything needs to be controlled... And the public out there who thinks, you know, relax, get on with it, chill out, I think is, is interesting and positive and important. For most normal people, this stuff is crazy, even if they don't necessarily have an outlet in which they can express that.
1: You've been listening to Last Orders. You can subscribe to this podcast on the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you'd like to help Spike to continue to thrive, do head over to spikes onlinecom and make a donation. Thanks for listening.